This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. conclusions of his novels don't allow for a kind of courtroom question guilty or not guilty you know it's it's too categoric he actually shows the infinite complexity of a situation like at the end of the portrait of a lady is isabel archer going to return to her evil husband or is she going to you know go into a realm of romance with a man whose kiss is like white lightning she appears to be going back to her husband but the knight who wants to carry her off away from this bad marriage is hasn't given up and we we live somewhat in the air we're not sure if she will hold by that decision to go back to her husband we're not offered what henry james called a dessert course he didn't want those neat happy endings that we might find in jane austen or dickens In a letter to H.G. Wells in 1915, novelist Henry James wrote, It is art that makes life, makes interest, makes importance, and I know of no substitute whatever for the force and beauty of its process. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. What makes a book a classic? On this week's show, Michael Hines of the Irish Centre of Poetry Studies at DCU and award-winning biographer Lyndall Gordon discuss the radical imagination of Henry James and his masterpiece, The Portrait of a Lady. And in keeping with the theme of great works of literature, the publishing director of Penguin Classics, Simon Winder, celebrates 80 years of Penguin Books. This is a show about moral sense and artistic vision, imagination and marriage, sacrifice and the infinite complexity of the human heart. But first, did American novelist Henry James set women free? Henry James' novels are mysterious, witty, intelligent and wonderfully troublesome. His artful portraits of failed relationships, bitter separations, crippling social conventions, greed, family secrets and lies make for fascinating reading. James's popular novels include The Turn of the Screw, The Wings of the Dove, The Golden Bowl, Washington Square, The Bostonians, The Aspirin Papers and What Maisie Knew. Interestingly, Henry James was also one of the most influential literary critics in the history of the novel. In his classic essay, The Art of Fiction, published in the Longman's magazine in September 1884, he stated, If you must indulge in conclusions, let them have the taste of a wide knowledge. Remember that your first duty is to be as complete as possible to make as perfect a work. Be generous and delicate. And then, in the vulgar phrase, go in. So what makes a Henry James novel such an intimate and mesmerising read? Well, to answer this big open question, I asked Dr. Michael Hines, the founder and director of the Irish Centre for Poetry Studies at DCU, and biographer and academic Dr. Lyndall Gordon, senior research fellow at St. Hilda's College, Oxford, and author of A Private Life of Henry James, to unravel the enigmatic heart of this iconic American writer. 
I think nobody opens up a sense of unique time and space quite like Henry James. You know, the, the, the phrase that I always come back to with him is that one where he talks about the subjective adventure and the intrepidity that's kind of communicated by that. I mean, we're, we're not just talking about a, a facile writing about the self. We're actually talking about, or even a mapping of the self. We're talking about trying to, to find out the things to map. You know, it goes that deep and it goes that, that wide. And he's a classic example of a writer that you have to learn how to read as you read him, which is why a lot of people make false starts when they read him. You know, a friend of mine took a sabbatical once and undertook to read the complete works of Henry James and he got as far as uh, halfway through the Princess Casamisa and, Casamisa and ended up throwing it against the wall. That in itself tells you something about the kind of special relationship, not just scholars, but anybody can have with James, the kind of intimacy that his work fosters between the reader and himself. You, you feel like a very unique kind of audience when you're reading James, I think. It's a very unique space that you go into with a Henry James book but that came at a price Lindell because in some way in his life he was a little disconnected from his emotions yet what he brings into his writing and his books was the complete opposite so how much did he sacrifice for his great art? Well this was a great issue in Henry James's work the issue of what we might call the unlived life and it's a subject he returns to again and again in his great stories of artists like The Lesson of the Master or The Beast in the Jungle. Some of his greatest stories are about this question that clearly worried him, that in a way to write is life itself. I think he would have believed that. And the way he he expresses emotions in his notebooks, that he's almost embracing his art, uh, feeling intense excitement as he plans a work. At the same time, he's very conscious that the commitment to art comes at a price, as you say, Sue, and that he has engaged with people. I think that he wasn't as detached as he might appear. I think that we have an image of Henry James from the great sergeant portrait of him painted when he was 70 years old, where He's almost leaning back and looking out from under half-veiled lids at the world, and you feel a space between him and the world. But I think that earlier he was deeply engaged with certain people whom he'd selected. He would almost say for use as a resource. But I think, for instance, that there were two women in his life. I mean, obviously he felt emotional about men, but there were two women in his life whom he, shall we say, used again and again in some of his greatest works. This was his beloved cousin, Minnie Temple, who died at the age of 24, tragically young, of tuberculosis. But she had a fund of life that was very gripping for James, and he, he almost embraces her imaginatively when he hears of her death. It's almost as though with her death he can possess her in a way he couldn't possess her in life. And then later on, a mature woman, a fellow writer, Constance Fenimore Wilson, an almost secretive relationship, one he kept under wraps from most people who knew him. And it wasn't because it was in any way not respectable. I think words of T.S. Eliot are coming up in my mind now. Eliot wrote brilliantly about Henry James, and he said that James preyed on living beings. And 
they became, I'm quoting Eliot, victims of a merciless clairvoyant. And what Eliot says is almost terrifying. But that makes it sound parasitic almost. There seems to be an implicit moral judgment almost in what Eliot says. And I, I kind of wonder about that. Because one of the things yes. I, I always come across in James's writing, and it seems to me, whether it's in the prose fiction or whether it's in other aspects of his writing, he, he's fantastically attuned to, to suffering. You know, his whole definition of the artist, whether he's talking yes. about Tintoretto or, or Shakespeare or whoever, his respect for an artist is always based upon their ability oh, to absolutely. incorporate suffering into their writing. Again, something Eliot said, he is somehow attuned to the agony of the spiritual life. I mean, James doesn't actually write about religion per se, but I think he understands the need for transcendence, the need for virtue, the struggle for, for good. I was responding a bit to Sue's question about the unlived life and his great need to know people, to understand them. And I'm speaking as a woman, I feel he understands women almost better than we understand ourselves. But his friendship with Edith Wharton is very instructive in that regard in terms of almost evolved a, a shared vision at times. I think James's writing is a lot more stringent than Wharton's, but that very powerful sense of in his writings, say, let's take for an example, even something like The Turn of the Screw, if we look at that book as a study of, of suffering and peculiarly female suffering, his understanding yeah. of how complex that is as a matter of social of conditioning, as a matter of uh, sexuality yeah. and all of these, it's, it's the incredible matrix of these things that I think you just don't see elsewhere. Yeah. I find him incredibly engaging because he mm. takes you into what's called that interior landscape in a way that no one else does. But and he tackles your own as a reader. He tackles your yes. own interior landscape because you're yes. pres- Presented with so many moral ambiguities and yes. things aren't clear cut, whether mm. it's yes. the confrontations within marriages or family life or even yes. just the secrets and lies that we all have that we fall into sometimes. Mm. Yes. Do you think, Sue, that one's got to almost have a taste for what is unstated? There's so many silences in James. You know, when people communicate with one another, one senses the silence between them of what is not said. And the sense that I feel this as a biographer, that I feel James is right, that there's a mystery at the heart of every life and that there is no way to get to the very core of a life. I'm, I'm thinking as I'm speaking of something that the American poet Emily Dickinson says, abyss has no biography. I think that's true of Henry James too. And perhaps that's one reason why he resists biography, because he knows there's no such thing as a full-scale life. That's a fiction of the marketplace. I think he's very like Dickinson and Whitman. I see them all as these adventurers, you know, the, the subjective adventurers, yeah. some adventure is something they all share. The real thing to respect in them, I think, is actually their refusal of an easy way out, or the way that you can't read yeah. them. You can't read them with a destination in mind. What's the great quote? You know, one day my buried prose will kick off all its tombstones at once. I mean, that idea that he was writing yeah. for maybe not even a hundred years from yeah. from the time of writing. But his spaces are as relevant today because if you yeah. look at the relationships, the complex relationships that he presents, while there's so much judgment between the different characters, that as a reader, it's very unclear in ways. Susan, as you say the word judgment, what's coming back to me is the fact that Henry James actually in his youth, about 1862, 
too, enrolled to be a law student at Harvard. And after one year, he chucked it. What was it about law that was totally wrong for him? And after he, he did that, he became a writer first of short stories, then of novels. But you see, I think that you've hit on something really important in using the word judgment, because Henry James's conclusions of his novels don't allow for a kind of courtroom question, guilty or not guilty. You know, it's, it's too categoric. He actually shows the infinite complexity of a situation, like at the end of The Portrait of a Lady, is Isabel Archer going to return to her evil, um, I would say, evil husband? Or is she going to, you know, go into um, a realm of romance with a man whose kiss is like white lightning? She appears to be going back to her husband. But the knight who wants to carry her off away from this bad marriage is hasn't given up. And we, we left somewhat in the air. We're not sure if she will hold by that decision to go back to her husband. So we're, we're not offered what Henry James called a dessert course of cakes and ice. He didn't want those neat, happy endings that we might find in Jane Austen or, or Dickens. How do you it's, think his relationship with his brother, the theologian and philosopher William James, how do you think that shaped his voice? Well, if you look at something like William James, James's pragmatism and when you read his his passages where he talks about how we're, we're never really tuned to the, the sense in which the everyday is full of awfulness and, and horror <laughs> that, that we just there's a, a quotidian terror that we all live with that we don't alert ourselves to and this brings us back to this idea of suffering once you once you see that in William James's work it doesn't exactly provide you an explicatory lens for reading Henry James's work it's not so much that say The Portrait of Lady is a horrible book to read it's not a horror story but it's full of horrors because yeah. of the kind of pressure that's being brought to bear on its protagonist but also on its reader. Although this, this might bring us back to what Linda was saying earlier about the degree to which sometimes we wonder about is, is James somehow delighted by this scenario? That, that this is part of a kind of proof of his analysis of how I th- terrible I think life he was is. Delighted. If I can interpolate, Michael, yeah. I think he was delighted yeah. in one particular way mm-hmm. in that he, he found his heroine, Isabel Archer, exhilarating yes. because he he wants to put her out on the stage of yeah. action yeah. and and he's taking a young girl who is coming from a provincial town in America, Albany, and he wants to see what she will do. That word do is so resonates so much for Henry James. He wants her to try to yes. know and given a yeah. fortune in order to free her, almost like Ralph Touchett, the, the invalid cousin in the novel, who is a very Jamesian, very characteristically Jamesian presence of really a spectatorial character who's looking on from a somewhat unlived life. And the experience of life is going to be yeah. watching what this creature, who is so full of promise, will do if she's brought to Europe and a fund of money is put into her hands to do what she wants. And the onus is really put on us. I have a view about that, that although she is caught up in what we might call the corruption of mm. the old world, of Europe, of fortune-hunting husband, and she's tied to him. She does say early on in the novel to her aunt, Mrs. Touchett, who says, you've got too much liberty. You're too American. Why do you exercise so much liberty? And and Isabel says, well, I always want to choose. I want to try and choose. And 
I think that's a very important um, exchange because I think when she marries Gilbert Osmond, she has been beguiled. She's an innocent who hasn't eaten of the tree of knowledge. And then in this marriage, she does eat of the tree of knowledge. She learns what evil is. It's manipulating another human being, betraying them, if you like. And, and I think that when she decides at the end of the novel to go back to her husband, she's making the first open-eyed choice. It's, it's a mature choice. She's committed to her stepdaughter, who is otherwise going to be manipulated by her father. And she feels committed to this little girl, Pansy. And she feels her moral responsibilities. So it seems to me that Isabel does transcend herself, but not in the way that Ralph Touchett had intended. But Ralph Touchett's in like, a, he's like an Eliotic character. I mean, he's a kind of yes. imp- impotent idiot in some respects too, you know. Yes. I, I've always felt with Ralph. I mean, he's at the heart of the, the weird comedy that we have at the beginning of The Portrait of Lady with the reading of the telegram. The, the Touchets are there and they kind of endlessly decipher the announcement in the telegram of, of Isabel's arrival. And it, it's a very weird framing device in the book because it basically puts you in yes. a, a kind of place straight away of not trusting anybody's judgment, not least yes. the judgment um, of I'm, these I'm, characters I'm, with money. Can I <laughs> twist a little left of this and bring it into his travel writing? How different a writer is he? It's his responses to a, a real world and the sense of him as an intermediary between those things. His writing on France and Italy in particular is absolutely stunning. Yes. It's almost like the prototype for anybody going to Italy yes. and to France. I think he's writing for a very receptive audience too. I mean, very early on, he does a lot of travel writing. There were In America, there were these magazines that were hungry for short pieces of that kind. James does give you impression after impression. He goes to places like the Protestant Cemetery in Rome uh, and gives you its extraordinary atmosphere of people who've died tragically far from home. It's that sense of exile, of being far from home that, I mean, it's not just impressions. There's there's an emotional content to the travel writing. Nobody writes about being abroad better, the dislocation of being abroad. He also does things that we would now associate with. It's peculiarly kind of 21st century. You know that great book by Graham Robb called The Discovery of France came out a couple of years ago. James does the yeah. exact same thing. He says, you know, in his uh, a little tour in France, he comes to yeah. France and he more or less says in the first couple of pages, people think France is Paris. I'm going to explore the counter principle. And he takes himself to yeah. Nantes and he takes himself down the Canal de Midi and he takes himself almost anywhere but Paris. Peculiar thing to do. A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. What do you think he would be writing about today? Writing about relationships. Bad. You know, um, don't you think so, Michael? Bad marriages. Um, that, but that's uh, his great subject. He would have been brilliant and at the consequences of things like the financial crash on marriages and people's emotional lives, the, the, yes. the pressure of an economy on... The, the dream of romance or whatever that kind of thing the yeah. sense of marriage I mean, is breaking up you know what yeah. I would love to see is um, if you've been given a, a, a massive budget and told you can um, you know draw together your own museum collection what a museum James would have created do you think you know? though he would have been able to live such a contained and lonely life though today and within all of that produce such sublime reads because possibly oh, yeah. all that loneliness and containment yeah. allowed him to write the great books that he did sure. so maybe he was a product of his time also. Mm. He's the product of a very peculiar moment in history where a, a certain kind of money afforded you a certain kind of, a kind of liberal arts time and space that doesn't really exist for many people anymore. Like the gentleman of leisure, you mean? Yeah, yeah to a degree, uh, yeah. I think, though, 
I don't entirely agree with your image of him in that I know he presents himself as a solitary in the Tower of Art, Hmm. but I see him with accomplices that he keeps somewhat secretively under wraps. I think that he cultivates collaborators in his art that he doesn't reveal. They're kept like the two women who've greatly interested me, Minnie and, and the woman he called Fenimore. Both these American women who were very advanced, very free, not feminists in the usual sense of the word, a sense of women who could evolve. And I think that he was aware of the woman question as this does place him in his time in the latter half of the 19th century. But he's not interested in women in terms of the usual woman question, which is about the vote and education in the 19th century, equal rights. He's interested in something that really goes back to Mary Wollstonecraft. Not that James has read her, but what women can bring to civilization out of their authentic selves. Nobody knows what woman's nature is, says John Stuart Mill, in The Subjection of Women. I think James has a sense of women sort of on the brink of evolution. I mean, the very rare and developing women he is fortunate enough to encounter and who do share something of themselves with him because I think he was irresistible to women. I think what he gave women what they most wanted, which was to be seen and known for what they felt themselves to be. For me, that's a particular fascination in reading James is what are his women going to do? It's almost like I'm looking at the future of my gender and thinking, what could she do? Michael, would you agree? Has he liberated women as well as readers? We've spent a lot of time talking about the portrait of a lady and... All you have to do is look at that book and yeah. see it's, it's, it's exploration of what one consciousness can be. And that consciousness yeah. is, a, is, a, is a female mind. That in itself speaks an awful lot of James's understanding and desire to understand and connect with the female mind. You probably could yeah. broaden it out and say that all of James's writing is this great experiment at trying to kind of discover the, the kind of range of consciousness, whether male or female. You know, that, 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 that's, that's his radical achievement. I mean, a remarkably generous and, and truly radical, radical imagination, you know, beyond our understanding.
that was Dr. Michael Hines from the Irish Centre of Poetry Studies at DCU and biographer, writer and academic Dr. Lyndall Gordon. Now, just to let you know, Post a Review of Poetry Studies has just published its fifth issue online entitled Imagining Italy, all very Jamesian. It's a lovely publication and well worth dipping into. And of course, for lovers of literary biography, Lyndall Gordon has produced quite an impressive range of books, including T.S. Eliot, An Imperfect Life, Charlotte Bronte, A Passionate Life, Virginia Woolf, A Writer's Life, and Lives Like Loaded Guns, Emily Dickinson. Okay, before we take a break, I've a nice little surprise for you. The good people at Books Ireland are giving one lucky Talking Books listener an annual subscription to Books Ireland. All you have to do is answer this very straightforward question. Who has received the Penn Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature in 2015? And a little hint for you, she's a novelist. So the first correct answer to Talking Books at Newstalk.com gets an annual subscription to Books Ireland. So off you go. Best of luck. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Now, if there's a book or author that you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooksandnewstalk.com. 
It's always lovely hearing from you, really lovely. So don't be shy. I'm all up for ideas. OK, let's press on with the theme of Classic Reads. To celebrate the 80th birthday of Penguin Books, Penguin has just published 80 Little Black Classics, 64-page reads for 80 pence. Very handy and not bad value at all. Well, the series showcases the enormous range and diversity of the world-renowned Penguin Classics list. I have to say it's quite an eclectic mix with plenty of philosophy, history, poetry and literary criticism to keep you going. Well, I got a hold of the publishing director of Penguin Classics, Simon Winder, over the weekend. Let's take a listen. Many people over a certain age will remember how for Penguin's 60th birthday, we published loads and loads of tiny little books at 60p. And I spotted my 18-year-old son. Uh, I've had this box set on my shelf for ages and covered in dust. And I spotted my son lying on the sofa uh, reading them. And I suddenly thought, gosh, well, you know, the, he wasn't even born when we did this last set. So copying the idea and updating it a bit isn't necessarily a bad thing at all, given that you know, such a large percentage of the population had no memory of those books. And so that's what started it, really. We thought for our 80th birthday, we ought to do 80 books and sell them in the UK at 80p. And the refreshing thing is, Simon, that you've great works in Persian, Chinese, Greek, Russian, Arabic. You've lots of classics coming from all over the world from different traditions. So it's not predictable so to speak. Well I think that's the really exciting thing is that having 80 books is obviously just arbitrary because we happen to be 80 years old. I mean we have really pushed as much as we can just how diverse the list is. So it's not just the greatest hits in a kind of boring way. I mean, there's lots of stuff which people won't have heard of particularly, where what we hope is because the books are uh, so cheap that people will trust us to have a go at authors they may not have come across ever before and be rewarded with something which they hadn't imagined they'd be interested in. And you have philosophers, poets, but one of the ones that really jumped out at me from the get-go, and I wasn't expecting to see it in this collection, is the Dhammapada. And for anyone interested in Buddhist thinking, that is one of the definitive books. Yes, I think that was one of the very exciting things. We realised we had enough space to really... I mean, it would have been easy to fill the series with lots of short stories. Early on in the discussions, we decided that would be a mistake. There's some wonderful short stories here, but there's nothing stopping us putting in religious texts, you know, true adventure, all kinds of things, really. And that we should somehow convey the incredible diversity of the Penguin Classics list over the years, because obviously it's been built up over many, many years. And another one that they could experiment with is the Victorian critic John Ruskin, who wrote Traffic. Yes. That kind of opens up a completely different playing field for readers, doesn't it? Yes. Well, actually, that, I put that in, actually, because I, I, I love Ruskin. And we did a very successful little edition of various Ruskin essays in Penguin's Great Ideas series a while back. And we were amazed by how many copies we sold. And I think Ruskin is one of these writers who, if he was around during the current sort of economic crisis, he would be the ideal person <laughs> to put everyone back on the moral straight and narrow. And so uh, Traffic is really just a fantastic essay about the limits of human greed and how we ought to just focus on things which are a little bit more important than the mad and the mad and, 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 and tragic accumulation of stuff. <laughs> and you have Roman poet Ovid's The Fall of Icarus. It's such an, an, an amazing story and I think it's fair to say that lots of writers have borrowed from it, haven't they? Well, Ovid, I think, is a perfect example of why these little books are so terrific because there are a number of massive writers, both, both in terms of their reputation and in terms of the length of their books, who I think do put people off and and uh, I think Obvious Mess of Orphices must be one of the most enjoyable books 
ever written, but it is quite long, and some of it's more exciting than other bits. But the hope is that by reading an account of the fall of Icarus, people will realise just how incredibly rich and fascinating a writer he is, and will not only enjoy the little book, but then go on, having been hooked, <laughs> to um, read the whole of the Metamorphoses, which I think would be a very good idea. And I think Sappho's Come Close will surprise people as well. Yes, well, I think that's a, the, she really benefits because obviously Sappho is famous both for being a very early woman writer, but also for how little she wrote and so, or so how little survived. So again, it seemed fabulous to be able to include her because these books are so small that actually it is possible to put in lots of Sappho. And there's, I mean, there's a number of writers like that really where they just benefit massively from a, a tiny dose. They're in her case, you know, there's not very much to go on anyway. But again, we've tried to spread 